Chapter Twenty One of Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Liliana Val in Portugal. Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm by Kate Douglas Wiggin Chapter 21 The Skyline Widens The time so long and eagerly awaited for had come, and Rebecca was a student at Wareham. Persons who had enjoyed the social bewilderments and advantages of foreign courts, or had mingled freely in the intellectual circles of great universities, might not have looked upon Wareham as an extraordinary experience. But it was as much of an advance upon Riverboro as that village had been upon Sunnybrook Farm. Rebecca's intention was to complete the four years' course in three, as it was felt by all the parties concerned that when she had attained the ripe age of seventeen, she must be ready to earn her own living and help in the education of the younger children. While she was wondering how this could be successfully accomplished, some of the other girls were cogitating as to how they could minder through the four years and come out at the end knowing no more than at the beginning. This would seem a difficult, well-nigh an impossible task, but it can be achieved, and has been, at other seats of learning than modest little Wareham. Rebecca was to go and throw on the cars daily from September to Christmas, and then board in Wareham during the three coldest months. Emma Jane's parents had always thought that a year or two in the Edgewood High School, three miles from Riverboro, would serve every purpose for their daughter, and send her into the world with as fine an intellectual polish as she could well sustain. Emma Jane had either though heartily concurred in this opinion, for if there was any one thing that she detested, it was the learning of lessons. One book was as bad as another in her eyes, and she could have seen the libraries of the world sinking into ocean's depths and have eaten her dinner cheerfully the while. But matters assumed a different complexion when she was sent to Edgewood and Rebecca to Wareham. She bore it for a week, seven endless days of absence from the beloved object, whom she could see only in the evenings when both were busy with their lessons. Sunday offered an opportunity to put the matter before her father, who proved obdurate. He didn't believe in education, and thought she had full enough already. He never intended to keep up blacksmithing for good when he leased his farm and came into Riverboro, but proposed to go back to it presently, and by that time Emma Jane would have finished school, and would be ready to help her mother with the dairy work. Another week passed. Emma Jane pained visibly and audibly. Her color faded, and her appetite, at table, dwindled almost to nothing. Her mother alluded plaintively to the fact that the Perkinses had a habit of going to the clients, that she'd always feared that Emma Jane's complexion was too beautiful to be healthy, that some men would be proud of having an ambitious daughter and be glad to give her the best advantages, that she feared the daily journeys to Edgewood were going to be too much for her own health, and Mr. Perkins would have to hire a boy to drive Emma Jane and finally that when a girl had such a passion for learning as Emma Jane, it seemed almost like wickedness to cross her will. 
Mr. Perkins bore this for several days, until his temper, digestion, and appetite were all sensibly affected. Then he bowed his head to the inevitable, and Emma Jane flew like a captive set free to the loved one's bower. Neither did her courage flag, although it was put to terrific tests when she entered the academic groves over at Wareham. She passed in only two subjects, but went cheerfully into the preparatory department with her five conditions intending to let the stream of education play gently over her mental surfaces, and not get any wetter than she could help. It is not possible to blink the truth that Emma Jane was dull, but a dogged, unswerving loyalty, and the gift of devoted, unselfish loving, these, after all, are talents of a sort, and may possibly be of as much value in the world as a sense of numbers or faculty for languages. Wareham was a pretty village with a broad main street, shaded by great maples and elms. It had an apothecary, a blacksmith, a plumber, several shops of one sort, and another, two churches and many boarding-houses, but all its interests gathered about its seminary and its academic. These seats of learning were neither better nor worse than others of their kind, but differed much in efficiency, according as the principal, who chanced to be as the head, was a man of power, an inspiration or the reverse. There were boys and girls gathered from all parts of the country, and in state, and they were of every kind and degree as to birth, position in the world, wealth or poverty. There was an opportunity for a deal of foolish and imprudent behaviour, but on the whole surprisingly little advantage was taken of it. Among the third and fourth year students there was a certain amount of going to and from the trains in couples, some carrying of heavy books up the hill by the sternest sex for their feminine schoolmates, and occasional bursts of silliness on the part of the heedless and precocious girls, among whom was Hulda Meserve. She was friendly enough with Emma Jane and Rebecca, but grew less and less intimate as time went on. She was extremely pretty, with a profusion of auburn hair and a few very tiny freckles, to which she constantly alluded, as no one could possibly detect them without noting her porcelain skin and her curling lashes. She had merry eyes, a somewhat too plump figure for her ears, and was popularly supposed to have a fascinating way with her. Riverboro being poorly furnished with Boo, she intended to have as good a time during her four years at Wareham as circumstances would permit. Her idea of pleasure was an ever-changing circle of admirers to fetch and carry for her, the more publicly the better, incessant chaff and lauder, laughter and vivacious conversation, made eloquent and effective by arch looks and telling glances. She had a habit of confiding her conquests to less fortunate girls and bewailing the incessant havoc and damage she was doing, a damage she avowed herself as innocent of, in intention, as any newborn lamb. It does not take much of this sort of thing to wreck an ordinary friendship, so before long Rebecca and Emma Jane sat in one end of the railway train in going to and from Riverboro, and Hulda occupied the other with her court. Sometimes this was brilliant beyond words, including a certain youthful Monte Cristo, who on Fridays expended thirty cents on a round-trip ticket and travelled from Wareham to Riverboro merely to be near Holder. Sometimes, too, the circle was reduced to the popcorn and peanut boy of the train, who seemed to serve every purpose in default of better game. Rebecca was in the normally unconscious state that belonged to her years, 
Boys were good comrades, but not more. She liked reciting in the same class with them. Everything seemed to move better, but from vulgar and precocious flirtations she was protected by her ideals. There was little in the lads she had met thus far to awaken her fancy, for it actually fed on better meat. All the schoolgirls' romances, with their wealth of commonplace detail, were not the stuff her dreams were made of, when dreams did flutter across the sensitive plate of her mind. Among the teachers at Wareham was one who influenced Rebecca profoundly, Miss Emily Maxwell, with whom she studied English literature and composition. Miss Maxwell, as the niece of one of Maine's ex-governors and the daughter of one of Boydorn's professors, was the most remarkable personality in Wareham, and that her few years of teaching happened to be in Rebecca's time was the happiest of all chances. There was no indecision or delay in the establishment of their relations. Rebecca's heart flew like an arrow to its mark, and her mind, meeting its superior, settled at once into an abiding attitude of respectful homage. It was rumoured that Miss Maxwell wrote which word, when it were uttered in a certain tone, was understood to mean not that a person had command of penmanship, Spencerian or otherwise, but that she had appeared in print. "'You like her! She writes!' whispered Hulda to Rebecca the first morning at prayers, where the faculty sat in an opposing row on the front seats. "'She writes, and I call her stuck up!' Nobody seemed possessed of exact information with which to satisfy the hungry mind. But there was believed to be at least one person in existence who had seen, with his own eyes, an essay by Miss Maxwell in a magazine. This height of achievement made Rebecca somewhat shy of her, but she looked her admiration, something that most of the class could never do with the unsatisfactory organs of vision given them by Mother Nature. Miss Maxwell's glance was always meeting a pair of eager dark eyes when she said anything particularly good. She looked for approval to the corner of the second bench, where every ch shade of feeling she wished to evoke was reflected on a certain sensitive young face. One day, when the first essay of the class was under discussion, she asked each new pupil to bring her some composition written during the year before, that she might judge the work and know precisely with what material she had to deal. Rebecca lingered after the others and approached the desk shyly. I haven't any compositions here, Miss Maxwell, but I can find one when I go home on Friday. They are packed away in a box in the attic. Carefully tied with pink and blue ribbons? asked Miss Maxwell with a whimsical smile. No, answered Rebecca, shaking her head decidedly. I wanted to use ribbons, because all the other girls did, and they looked so pretty, but I used to tie my essays with twine strings on purpose, and the one on solitude I fastened with an old shoelacing just to show it what I thought of it. Solitude, laughed Miss Maxwell, raising her eyebrows. Did you choose your own subject? No, Miss Dearborn thought we were not old enough to find good ones. That were some of the others. Fireside reveries, Grant as a soldier, reflections of the life of P.T. Barnum, buried cities, I can't remember any more now. They were all bad, and I can't bear to show them. I can write poetry easier and better, Miss Maxwell. Poetry, she exclaimed. Did Miss Dearborn require you to do it? Oh, no, I always did it even at the farm. Shall I bring all I have? It isn't much. Rebecca took the blank book in which she kept copies of her effusions and left it at Miss Maxwell's door. 
hoping that she might be asked in and thus obtain a private interview. But a servant answered her ring, and she could only walk away disappointed. A few days afterwards, she saw the black-covered book on Miss Maxwell's desk, and knew that she dreaded moment of criticism had come. So she was not surprised to be asked to remain after class. The room was quiet, the red leaves rustled in the breeze and flew in at the open window, bearing the first compliments of the season. Miss Maxwell came and sat by Rebecca's side on the bench. Did you think these were good? she asked, giving her the verses. Not so very, confessed Rebecca. But it's hard to tell all by yourself. The Perkinses and the Cobbs always said they were wonderful, but when Mrs. Cobb told me she thought they were better than Mr. Longfellow's, I was worried, because I knew that couldn't be true. This ingenious remark confirmed Miss Maxwell's opinion of Rebecca, as a girl who could hear the truth and profit by it. Well, my child, she said smilingly, your friends were wrong, and you were right. Judged by the proper tests, they are pretty bad. Then I must give up all hope of ever being a writer, sighed Rebecca, who was tasting the bitterness of Hemlock, and wondering if she could keep the tears back until the interview was over. Don't go so fast, interrupted Miss Maxwell. Though they don't amount to anything as poetry, they show a good deal of promise in certain directions. You almost never made a mistake in rhyme or matter, and this shows you have a natural sense of what is right, a sense of form, poets would call it. When you grow older, have a little more experience, in fact, when you have something to say, I think you might write very good verses. Poetry needs knowledge and vision, experience and imagination, Rebecca. You have not the first three yet, but I rather think you have a touch of the last. Must I never try any more poetry, not even to amuse myself? Certainly you may. It will only help you to write better prose. Now for the first composition... I am going to ask all the new students to write a letter giving some description of the town and a hint of the school life. Shall I have to be myself? asked Rebecca. What do you mean? A letter from Rebecca Randall to her sister Hannah at Sunnybrook Farm, or to her aunt Jane at the Brickhouse, Riverboro, is so dull and stupid, if it is a real letter. But if I could make believe I was a different girl altogether, and write to somebody who would be sure to understand everything I said, I could make it nicer. Very well. I think that's a delightful plan, said Miss Maxwell. And whom will you suppose yourself to be? I like Harris's very much, replied Rebecca contemplatively. Of course I never saw one, but interesting things are always happening to Harris's, especially to the golden-haired kind. My Harris wouldn't be vain and haughty like the wicked sisters in Cinderella. She would be noble and generous. She would give up a grand school in Boston because she wanted to come here where her father lived, when he was a boy, long before he made his fortune. The father is dead now, and she was she has a guardian, the best and kindest man in the world. He is rather old, of course, and sometimes very quiet and grave, but sometimes, when he is happy, he is full of fun, and then Evelyn is not afraid of him. Yes, the girl shall be called Evelyn, Abercrombie, and her guardian's name shall be Mr. Abdem Ladd. Do you know Mr. Ladd? asked Miss Maxwell in surprise. Yes, he's my very best friend, cried Rebecca delightedly. Do you know him too? Oh yes, he's a trustee of these schools, you know, and often comes here. But if I let you suppose any more, you will tell me your whole letter and then I shall lose a pleasant surprise. What Rebecca thought of Miss Maxwell, we already know. How the teacher regarded the pupil, 
may be gathered from the following letter written two or three months later. Wareham, December 1st. My dear father, as you well know, I have not always been an enthusiast on the subject of teaching. The task of cramming knowledge into these self-sufficient and efficient youngsters of both sexes discourages me at times. The more stupid they are, the less they are aware of it. If my department were geography or mathematics, I believe I should feel that I was accomplishing something, for in those branches application and industry work wonders. But in English literature and composition, one yearns for brains, for appreciation, for imagination. Month after month I toil on, opening oyster after oyster, but seldom finding a pearl. Fancy my joy this term, when, without any violent efforts at shell splitting, I came upon a rare pearl, a black one, but of satin skin and beautiful lustre. Her name is Rebecca, and she looks not unlike Rebecca at the well, in our family Bible. Her hair and eyes being so dark as to suggest a strain of Italian or Spanish blood. She is nobody in particular. Man has done nothing for her. He has no family to speak of, no money, no education worthy the name, has had no advantages of any sort. But Dame Nature flung herself into the breach and said, This child I to myself will take. She shall be mine and I will make a lady of my own. Blessed Wordsworth, how he makes us understand. And the pearl never heard of him until now. Think of reading Lucy to a class, and when you finish, seeing a fourteen-year-old pair of lips quivering with delight, and a pair of eyes brimming with comprehending tears. You poor darling, you too know the discouragement of sowing lovely seed in rocky earth, in sand, in water, and it almost seems sometimes in mud, knowing that if anything comes up at all, it will be some poor starveling plant. Fancy the joy of finding a real mind, of dropping seed in a soil so warm, so fertile, that one knows there are sure to be foliage, blossoms and fruits all in good time. I wish I were not so impatient and so greedy of results. I am not fit to be a teacher. No one is who is so scornful of stupidity as I am. The pearl writes quaint, contrified little verses. Doggerel they are. But somehow or other she always contrives to put in one line, one thought, one image, that shows you she is, quite unconsciously, to herself in possession of the secret. Goodbye. I'll bring Rebecca home with me some Friday, and let you and your mother see her for yourselves. Your fetch affectionate daughter, Emily. End of chapter 21 Recording by Liliana Val in Portugal.